0: So we're going to read 1 Samuel 1 now. So either keep your phone out and jump onto your Bible app or grab your paper Bible and open it up to 1 Samuel 1 and we're going to read the whole chapter. Here we go. There was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zephite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimate. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Penaniah. Penaniah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penaniah, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will look only look your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving and her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went on her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So, in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, "'Because I asked the Lord for him.'" When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and fulfil his vow, Hannah didn't go. She said to her husband, "'After the boy's weaned, I'll take him "'and present him before the Lord, "'and he will live there always.'" "'Do what seems best to you,' her husband Elkanah told her. "'Stay here until you've weaned him. "'Only may the Lord make good his word.'" So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she'd weaned him after he was weaned she took the boy with her young as he was along with a three-year-old bull an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine and brought him to the house of the lord at shiloh when the bull had been sacrificed they brought the boy to eli and she said to him pardon me my lord as surely as you live i am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the lord I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord, for his whole life he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there.
1: Now, my dad was what you might call a self-made man. Uh, He was born into a working-class family. His dad was a car mechanic. And at 14, my dad left school, or at least I say left school, The fact is, he was expelled from school, and he went to an institution for uncontrollable children, which, if you know any of my kids, suddenly starts to make a lot more sense, doesn't it? (laughs) And then, when he was 19, my dad graduated from there and went to jail for stealing cars, for breaking and entering, a whole bunch of fairly low-end crimes, but it was enough to go to jail. And when he came out, my dad had no money, no job, no car, obviously, otherwise he wouldn't have been pinching them, no skills, and no future. And yet by the time he was 52, when he died, my dad was an unqualified success. He owned three businesses, all of which he'd started. He employed a small workforce, and he did it all by himself. He spent years and years building his businesses in my entire childhood I can only remember him having one holiday but gradually one business grew into the next and then grew into the next and slowly dad became a self-made man and look I really admire that don't you I think most people would admire that we we use words like determination and drive, and self-discipline, and self-reliance, and self-assurance. And they're all really positive things. But that word self really is the word that defines our age, isn't it? We live in a world where the self has become everything. I decide truth for myself. I decide right and wrong for myself. I decide meaning for myself. I even decide gender for myself. Self is so important. Even biology is now irrelevant. The 21st century has become the age of the self. And when you get that in mind, it starts to make sense that humility has become a bit of a lost virtue, hasn't it? Because humility naturally downplays the self. So have you noticed that humility is something that doesn't really get aspired to anymore? We don't really hold up the idea of a humble person anymore. recently I came across a great book by a man named David Brooks and it was called The Road to Character and in that book he talks about listening to a radio broadcast that had originally aired on the day World War II ended. So this day this broadcast, the day World War II ended. And on that day the radio host said today our deep down feeling is one of humility we did not win the war because destiny created us better than all other people i hope that in victory we are more grateful than proud that's profound isn't it i hope that in, i hope we're more grateful than proud in victory and then Brooke said From that moment, he turned on the TV and there was a sporting game on. And he saw a football player cross and score a try and then get up and do this incredible victory dance of celebrating his own magnificence and success. And Brooke said it occurred to me, I had just watched more self-congratulation after scoring a few points in a game than I heard after we won World War II. And he said it did occur to me That perhaps there was a strain of humility that was more common then than now. That there was a moral ecology stretching back centuries, but less prominent now. Encouraging people to be more sceptical of their desires, more aware of their own weaknesses, more intent on combating their flaws, the flaws in their nature, and turning weakness into strength. Really, he's saying we we live in a culture that worships the self. It trusts the self. It celebrates the self. I am the master of me, and any criticism of me, anything that makes me question myself, is bad. The self is king. And so, of course, you can imagine, our culture is never going to have any time for God, is it? My dad had no interest in God at all. Now he said, You can keep your God. I worked for what I've got. See, the idea of the self made person, the idea of the self, really excludes the idea of God. And yet 1 and 2 Samuel is really going to challenge that idea. Because in 1 and 2 Samuel, we meet the God who knows and who judges. And yet we begin by meeting a failure, a failure whose name is Hannah. Hannah's anything but a success. Hannah is, in fact, a sad and humiliated woman. We just read the story, but have a look in verse 2. Hannah is is, uh, married to Elkanah, who has two wives. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. And look, that's enormously painful in our day, But in ancient cultures like Israel, it's incredibly painful. It's doubly painful because in ancient cultures like Israel, children were a sign of God's blessing. They ensured that your line was going to continue. And for a wife, this was especially true. This was how you measured your success as a wife. You had given your husband heirs. That is, children were the mark of success for a woman. And yet, you know what makes it even worse for Hannah? Her barrenness was not medical. It was spiritual. Because look in verse 5, the Lord had closed her womb. And then it's repeated in verse 6, the Lord had closed her womb. See, for whatever reason, God had stopped Hannah from having children. And to rub it in, Peninnah keeps provoking Hannah in verse 7. She keeps tormenting you. You can almost imagine Peninnah every time she falls pregnant again saying, oh my goodness, I just can't seem to stop having babies. I'm so blessed, Hannah. Why is it do you think God loves me so much more than he loves you? And you can tell men haven't changed very much in 3000 years. Look at what Elkanah says in verse 8. Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? He's not short on ego, is he? I thought I'd have a crack at that in our marriage. Emma, don't I mean more to you than 10 trips to Europe? Don't I mean more to you than a new car? Don't I mean more to you than a cup of tea? When she says no to that third one, I think I'll know that I'm in trouble, right? He doesn't get it. What he doesn't get is that nothing can ease Hannah's pain because she's not just childless. She's cursed by God. Hannah, at the start of this story, is the antithesis of the self-made person. She's a failure, she's humiliated, and yet she's also incredibly godly. Because instead of getting angry with God, instead of getting bitter with God, I'm sure she went through some dark times, but she prays to God in humility. Look at what she prays in verse 11. "'O Lord Almighty,' If you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Hannah prays to the Lord Almighty, literally, the God of the heavenly armies. That's what that phrase, the Lord Almighty, means. It's the God of the heavenly armies, the one who has all the power. And she promises that if he blesses her with a son, she will give him back into the Lord's service. She'll devote him to God's glory. And then in verse 19, God hears her prayer. And she lays with Elkanah and she conceives and God answers her. Helpless, humble Hannah has a baby. God removes her shame and then Hannah answers God, or Hannah honors God by calling her son Samuel, which means God heard, heard by God, God answered. Which is a lovely story, isn't it? It's a great story. But here's the question. Why start with that story? Why start this book on Israel's history with someone who frankly is incredibly insignificant? This is the only time you ever really hear about her in all of human history. So in the coming weeks, we are gonna meet some of the people who have shaped the world. Not just Israel's culture, but the world's culture. People like King David and King Saul and Nathan and Samuel, these men actually shape the world that we live in, so why start with a nobody like Hannah? Well, because Hannah becomes the measuring stick for every single person in the books of Samuel. As we meet David and Saul and Nathan and Samuel, we're going to be invited to measure them these great men of history, to measure them against Hannah. Hannah's the benchmark. And to crystallize it, Hannah sings a song. And her song really is the theme song to the books of Samuel. If we understand Hannah's song, we'll actually understand everything that happens in the next six weeks or so as we look through the books of Samuel. Come and have a look at Hannah's song in chapter 2, verse 1. 1 Samuel 2, verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is is a God who knows, and by Him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sits them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So that's the theme song of the books of Samuel. And at one level, you can see it's about Hannah. The, the word there the, about the baron and the one who's had many children kind of rings true, doesn't it? But really, that song, when you look at it, it's actually about God, isn't it? It's about God and His majesty. So look in verse 3. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by Him deeds are weighed. See, Hannah doesn't put self in the center of everything. Hannah puts God in the center of everything. There is a God who knows, knows everything. And there is a God who weighs deeds, he's the judge because look down in verse 8 the foundations of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world God is the judge because he's the Almighty Creator God's the one who set the foundations of the earth there and so of course he has the right to judge what happens on the earth and so it's not actually me who determines the course of my life now take a look in verse 6 The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. Do you see just how powerful God is there? It's extraordinary, isn't it? God controls every aspect of human existence. That's what that song is trying to do. Every aspect of human existence, from life to death to poverty to wealth, when someone dies, that's because God has decided it. When someone gets better, that's because God has decided it. When someone loses all of their money or grows up in poverty like my dad do, that's because God in His wisdom has decided that, just as He gives some of us wealth. When someone's successful and they're honoured in the Australia Day Awards... And they sit in the seat of honour in Canberra. That's because God has decided that. Whether they happen to thank God for it or not. And when someone finds themselves shamed on social media, when someone finds themselves thrown on the social ash heap, that's because God, for His purposes, has decided that. What Hannah's saying here is, God is in control of every aspect of human existence. All our lives, all our fortunes are in God's hands. Have you realised this? See, lots lots of us have, if we were brought up with people who've taught us this. But it's funny, around about this time of the year, often people will come along to our church and they join us for the first time And the idea that God is in control of absolutely everything just makes us really uncomfortable often because we think well naturally the the follow-on from that must be that I don't make any real decisions that's the fear that we often have look the Bible actually teaches both the Bible does teach that we make real decisions for ourselves we are responsible for what we decide but notice what God's Word says here life death Poverty, wealth, honour, shame. God is the one who brings those things into our lives. Now, how do you reconcile your decisions with God's? Well, that's what you've got to keep reading. I wish we had that on film. If you couldn't see it, Dave jumped up, the microphone went everywhere, batteries went all over the place. And Sam swept in majestically. The Lord raises people up and brings them down. Yes, well done. <laughs> on shame, yeah. Can you see from Hannah's song, there is no such thing as the self-made person there's no such thing as the person who has forged their own path or who creates their own identity or who governs their own future see our culture has become so obsessed with self-determination and self-identity it's absolute folly it's complete arrogance I mean it's understandable Because we live in the age of self. We've abandoned the true God, so what God are we going to replace Him with? The God of ourselves, of course. It's understandable. But we're living a lie. God brings life and death. God brings poverty and wealth. God sits the king on His throne and the pauper on His mat. And thinking that I have brought about all this success... Only invites God's judgment. Because look what Hannah says in verse three. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warrior are broken, but those who stumbled around with strength, those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children but she who had many sons pines away. Do you see how God there judges the arrogance? The arrogant warrior's bow is broken, but the stumbler is raised up. The proud rich person hires themselves out for work to get food, but the hungry person is hungry no more. Baron Hannah bears seven children, but arrogant Peninna pines away, presumably because she loses her. And we're not just talking about reversals of fortune there. We're talking about God ruling his world, judging the arrogant, the arrogant strong, the arrogant rich, the arrogant successful. Which, of course, doesn't mean that we would then say every time someone loses their money or loses their health or becomes unpopular, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily being judged for their arrogance. But Hannah is saying, do not invite the judgment of God by your arrogance. Instead, just have a look at Hannah's heart in verse 1. "'My heart rejoices in the Lord. "'In the Lord my horn is lifted high. "'My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. "'There is no one holy like the Lord. "'There is no one besides you. "'There is no rock like our God.'" Do you see Hannah's attitude when she finally has gotten a child? This is all of God, and it's none of me. God is my rock. God is my strength. God is my security. God is the one who's done this and delivered me. See, Hannah is the very opposite of the arrogant person, isn't she? She recognizes she is not a self-made woman. She is a God-made woman. In fact, really, this is the heart of humility, isn't it? Just thinking about, what is humility for a minute? Sometimes humility is presented to us as thinking that you are nothing. Humility is thinking that you're nothing, as thinking that you're worthless. It's being down on yourself. Of course it's not that. God has created us, and nothing that God creates is worthless. Tim Keller wrote a book, and in a book he said that humility is self-forgetfulness. He said, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself, the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. And look, I think there's something incredibly helpful in that. But I think that's ultimately wrong too. The essence of humility is not worthlessness, and it's not even self forgetfulness. It's God consciousness. Humility comes when I am so conscious of the majesty of God that I see myself rightly. Humility comes when I realize that there is a God who knows, knows more than I do, knows me better than I do, and knows everything in the world, and therefore will judge rightly. Humility comes when I know that, and so at last in verse 1, I proudly. <laughs> I stop letting my mouth run on. Humility comes when I'm so caught up with the majesty of God, that I don't just forget myself, I lose interest in myself altogether. It's replaced with a greater passion. I'm captured by someone greater and more grander and more beautiful and more worthy than me. And look, we so need Hannah's song ringing in our ears as we live in our culture, don't we? We need Hannah's song reminding us again and again and again of the majesty of God so that we become less impressed with ourselves. Every time we hear the world spouting its self affirming, self worshipping nonsense, we need Hannah's words ringing in our ears. There is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The Lord brings death, the Lord makes alive, the Lord sends wealth, the Lord sends poverty and when we hear people say I decide what's real for me we need to say to ourselves no God decides what's real for me and when we hear people say I decide what's good and right for me we need to say to ourselves and them "No, my God decides what's good and right for me and when we hear people say I need to be true to myself we need to say no I want to be true to my God Christians are going to be profoundly countercultural people in the 21st century. Because as the world gets swallowed up more and more and more by its own ego, we need to be more God conscious than ever. That's why Samuel starts with Hannah. Because she and her song really are the benchmark that everyone else, not just in the book, but actually in history, is going to be judged against. But the thing is, from Hannah, the story now spirals upwards and outwards to Israel's leaders and to, in fact, the entire nation. Let's meet a man named Eli. Eli is kind of the opposite of of, uh, Hannah. Eli is the book of, um, of Samuel. Eli is the priest at the tent of Shiloh. In other words, Eli is Israel's leader. And you actually get a hint about him the very first time you meet him. So have a look in chapter 1, verse 12. 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verse 12. As Hannah kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice wasn't heard. And Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I haven't been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Now, it's only subtle, isn't it? But already, Eli's a guy you don't like much, isn't he? He's not measuring up against Hannah's benchmark. He mistakes godliness for drunkenness. But actually, we really get the measure of him when we meet his sons. Come to the passage straight after Hannah's song, chapter 2, verse 12. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned the priest-servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no. Hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Hophni and Phinehas, that's their names, And they're basically Israel's version of Wills and Harry. They're the heirs to the throne, the privileged young men. They're priests in God's tent. They are the high and mighty, opposite end of the scale from Hannah. But verse 12, they've got no regard for the Lord. Verse 17, they treat the Lord's offerings with contempt. You say the priests were meant to earn their living from the sacrifices, But the best bit was always meant to go to God. The fat was always meant to go to God. But Eli's sons took the bits they wanted. And on top of that, if you look down in verse 22, they're also sleeping with the women who serve in the temple. Now, the suggestion there, it's not said explicitly, but the suggestion there is that the women didn't necessarily have much choice in that. Think about the power imbalance there. And even though Eli knows all about this, He fails to restrain them. Hophni and Phinehas are the high and mighty, along with Eli, but they are arrogant. And when you measure them against Hannah's song, they fail. In fact, when you measure them against Hannah's son, they fail. Because have a look at what Samuel the boy grows into in 2 verse 18. Look in 2 verse 18. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, serving before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. That is, his little son, like a priest. In other words, he's doing what Hophni and Phinehas were meant to do, serving the Lord. Now look down in verse 21. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. See, Samuel, even as a little boy, is everything his mum was and everything Hannah's song upholds and everything that Hophni and Phinehas aren't. And so now that we've had the song, now that we've seen uh, Hannah and Eli and Hophni and Phineas and Samuel, what's going to happen? What do we imagine is going to play out? What will the God who knows and ways do? Well, God honours little Samuel. Have a look in 319, chapter 3, verse 19. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as the prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he uh, revealed himself to Samuel through his word, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. Little Samuel, the son of a barren, disgraced woman, becomes the great leader of God's people, everything Eli and his sons were meant to be. But come and have a look in chapter 2, verse 27, and you see the fate of Eli and his sons. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor." out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest and to go up to the altar and to burn incense and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourself on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? therefore the lord the god of israel declares i promised that members of your family would minister before me forever but now the lord declares far be it from me those who honor me i will honor but those who despise me will be disdained the time is coming when i will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age and you will see distress in my dwelling although good will be done to israel No one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do what's in accord with my heart and mind, I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so that I can have food to eat. What did God say in Hannah's song? He said he would guard the feet of his saints. But he also said that those who oppose him would be shattered. And God says to Eli, I am about to shatter you, your whole family line. You have dishonoured me, so I will dishonour you before Israel. You see, we're only three chapters in, but Hannah's song is already echoing through the story, isn't it? And in the coming weeks, we're going to see Hannah's song echo in Samuel's life, we're going to see it echo all the way through Saul's life. We're going to see it echo through David's life, both in his rise and also later on in his fall. But you know, one of the funny things is that Hannah's song also found an echo a thousand years later in the lips of another mother. Just come with me to, to Luke chapter 1 for a minute and have a look at the song that Mary sings. In Luke chapter 1, when she finds out that she too is going to have a son. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Mary's just found out she's going to have a boy. And Mary said, Luke 1, 46, "'My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for He's been mindful,' of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, Remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. Do you see how well Mary's song echoes Hannah's song there? Mary's heart rejoices in the Lord. Uh, Hannah's heart, sorry, rejoices in the Lord. Mary's soul glorifies the Lord. Hannah delights in Yahweh's salvation. Mary's spirit rejoices in God, the Saviour. Hannah says there is no one like the Lord. Mary says, holy is his name. That is, Mary's deliberately picking up Hannah's language here. Mary says, uh, Hannah says, Yahweh raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. Mary picks up the same theme. He brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. Hannah says, those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry, hunger no more. And Mary says, he has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. Do you see how what Mary's doing here is basically re-singing Hannah's song? There's this echo of Hannah's song a thousand years later. Because when you think about it, Mary herself is like an echo of Hannah. She's a young woman in shameful circumstances. Hannah is a wife who can't have children. Mary is having a child, but she's not even a wife. They're both shamed, but they're both trusting God who raises them up. And yet I don't think that the echo we're meant to hear clearest is between Hannah and Mary. I think the echo we're meant to hear is between their sons, Because Hannah's song really is Jesus' song, isn't it? The end of Hannah's song could almost have been written in Jesus' day. Just look at the end of Hannah's song again. God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. Isn't that the perfect description of Jesus' resurrection? God really did raise Jesus up from the dust and seat him with princes. He raised him up to his right hand in heaven. Verse 10, the most high will thunder from heaven. God did thunder from heaven at Jesus' baptism and also on the mountain of transfiguration when he said, this is my son whom I love. Hannah's song even mentions the king. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That is, Hannah wrote this song a thousand years before Jesus was born But it's almost as if she always knew it would be jesus song after all because didn't jesus life actually echo hannah's song so beautifully jesus was the one who was humble he had nowhere to lay his head he was a an impoverished itinerant preacher who obeyed god who trusted god who said no to satan's offer of glory and kingdoms and who said yes to the cross of shame that is, Jesus is the very opposite of Eli. He's the very opposite of Hophni and Phinehas. He's the very opposite of that arrogant, self made, self obsessed culture that we live in. Even though Jesus had every right to be proud and every right to be arrogant because he is God, the creator, he was actually deeply humble and chose a humiliated death. You see, Hannah's song isn't just the benchmark for what I want to be like. It's a mirror to Jesus' character. We hold this up and we measure Jesus against it and it just leads us to admire Jesus all the more. It just leads us to say, isn't Jesus sensational? Isn't Jesus amazing? Isn't he noble? Isn't he humble? Isn't he the person I want to trust and follow? That is, as our culture just gets more and more and more narcissistic and selfish, doesn't Jesus just shine brighter and brighter? Isn't Jesus all the more admirable? Let's pray. Our great God, we praise you because you are a God who knows. You know everything, you created everything. And you are the judge. And yet we live in a culture that says that we are the judge, the judge of everything, the judge of right and wrong and truth and identity. And we're just swimming in this culture and it affects us in so many ways. We we pray that we won't think that we are worthless. We pray that we won't even be self-forgetting, but that we will be you-obsessed. We pray that we'll be conscious of your majesty, your affection, your might, your 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 glory. We pray that we'll be so captured with it that we'll let you tell us what is right and wrong and true and false. And we praise you for Jesus who walked this walk so perfectly. We praise you that Hannah's song describes Jesus' character so perfectly. And as we think of our Lord Jesus, who hung on the cross, killed by people who had no real power over him, but that he chose that shameful death, we pray that we'll worship him. We pray that we'll want to be like him, that we'll admire him and praise him by him. And we pray that we'll trust him. Amen.